Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I have to tell you something, people. If you haven't been watching the OJ documentary on ESPN, you need to go watch it. I know everything at ESPN 30 for 30 are amazing, amazing episodes. But this one, a lot of people were sitting there going, oh, it's it's too long. It's, uh, it's 10 hours. But I'm going to tell you something. It's been amazing. So please, go watch it. And uh, that's all I can say. And you know, we have a great we have a great uh, show today. Actually, we're calling back to my area. Uh, well, I grew up in Cherry Hill. My next guest uh, is from Marlton. He's a very very funny comic. It's Jay Black. How you doing, Jay? Hey there, Steve Cooper. How are you, buddy? Good man. It's uh, it's it's, it's how, now. How's the weather back there in Marlton? Is is it nice today? Well, it it depends on your definition of nice. I mean, it's sunny and uh, it's exceedingly hot. So hot. Uh, yes, yeah. I mean. From a technical point of view, I guess if you're somebody that enjoys going outside, it's an okay day. But from my point of view, it's just a day that's going to cost me electrical money. Burbank right now, 107. Wait, it's 107 degrees where you are? Yes. That's why I'm inside. I have the air on. Put it this way. My girlfriend's upstairs because she, uh, she, I said, go upstairs. I'm recording the show. And she has the air on up there, and she's like, "Can you hear the air?" I said, "I don't care if I can hear the air; it's uh, it's fine." And it's true. I mean, even and you know how heat rises, even mm-hmm. though when it's this hot, your place can be eighty-two, and you're still fine. Yeah, uh, here, here's what I'm going to say. Uh, I in the seventies, there was all those like Time magazine articles, like global cooling. It's time for it. We're going to have the new ice age come. Of the two, I'd be so much happier with with an ice age right now than than what we're currently dealing with. Like, I just want the scientists to get together and go back to when it was uh, being cold again. Right. Because you can you can always get warmer. You can't get cooler easily. I know. It's amazing. It's the thing. So anyway, so uh, Jay, I got to talk to you. I know you're from Martin. Now, um, now I know. And Brian was on uh, just uh, last week. Was Brian on last week? Uh, Brian was, and uh, and your guys, your buddy uh, Anthony Stark has been on. And, uh, oh yeah, I love Anthony. And we've talked about you, and uh, we, you know. And I got to ask you now. You've been doing comedy for a long time, and I know you started writing with Brian at a, creating at a young age. Yeah. But, but when did you decide you wanted to do comedy? And was it, as, I mean, it was probably before Brian, but what at what point like, did you watch TV? Did you see a comic? Did you, or what made you decide at a young age to get into this business? Sure. Now, I have a story. It's a true story that uh, it's one of these uh, stories that uh, outside incidents take from a lovely story to a tragic story, which is I, uh, I was seven years old. I was, uh, at my house, and uh, my dad, who was a very taciturn guy, did not show a lot of emotion. Um, he said, uh, "We're going to watch. Uh, we're going to watch a movie," and uh, the whole family gathered around, and we watched Bill Cosby himself, which is probably, I, I mean, arguably the best concert stand-up film of all time. I'm sure there's going to be people who said like, a, you know, Richard uh, Pryor on Sunset. Um, but I, I go Bill Cosby himself for the best like two hour concert stand up film. Okay. And um, I, it was just mind blowing because I had never laughed that hard in my entire life. But more than that, more than that, I had never seen my dad laugh that hard in my entire life. And I remember thinking, and, and this is what gets me in trouble now, because there's interviews out there that I've, I've repeated this story a couple of times. But the line I always used to say was. I saw what Bill Cosby was doing and said, I want to do that too. <laughs> Which, take it out of context. I don't know if anybody's going to ever Google my name and Bill Cosby's name, 
But uh, I've, I've tried to find all the blogs on which that's posted and then, like, leave a comment. Like, at the time, <laughs> I didn't know that this could mean anything except comedy and jello. Well, isn't, isn't, that, isn't that scary that, uh, that, that it's come to that? Because, you know, growing up near Philadelphia, you know, Bill Cosby was around our households. And I'm a little older. I'm 10 years older than you, I believe. And we watched the uh, Cosby Kids. And I still have, like, the best of Bill Cosby, the cassette that I used to drive when I go to gigs and listen to. Yeah. And he was such... He, in our area, especially in our area, in the South Jersey, in the Philadelphia area, mm-hmm. he was he was this dynamo, and and that's what hits us more because it happened in our backyard. Yeah, it's it's well, two things on that. One, uh, it's with the Jungle Book that just came out recently. I remember reading a ton of articles online, just reminding everybody, uh, oh, uh, Rudyard Kipling was a colonialist racist jerk. FYI. And um, the, the question being, can you divorce a man from his work? You know, can you take a guy who was a colonialist racist jerk? Sure. And he was of his time. Sure. But he also wrote a great story. So can't we just enjoy the story without having to preface it with, oh, he's a terrible racist guy right. as well. So now Bill Cosby and like liking Bill Cosby has become this thing where you have to preface it with, of course, I don't condone all the terrible things he was doing, but he was still probably pound for pound the greatest stand up who ever lived or at least in the conversation as such. Right. Oh, yeah, totally. And and you're right. And that's the funny thing. It's also and it's also just the way our, our climate has changed where I saw I read an article and you know how you when you read some blogs and, you know, you just it catches your eye. And yeah. someone was writing how, you know, and I'm a big John Hughes fan. I'm, I'm a kid of the 80s, man. I'm a co- I was in college in the 80s. And Absolutely. Someone, someone's writing how, how 16 Candles, oh, it's so misogynistic and, and sexist and racist. And I'm like, it was so damn funny. And, and, and it <laughs> yeah. was. And, I don't, and the funny thing is, after I read this article, I posted it on Facebook. And people from my age, all intelligent, I mean, you know, I'm not all my friends are intelligent, but most of them are intelligent people, all were like, this person has a stick up their ass. And it's like Cosby. We know what he did. We know this is awful. But you're right. His work, his stand-up was great. I mean, I still say to myself, buck-buck. You know, the buck-buck bit and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it feels like, you know, uh, I, I've often said that when it comes to uh, when you act in public, everybody should get a I'm not a criminal card. And you get to keep that card until you do something wrong. And the second you do something wrong, they take the I'm not a criminal card away. Right. Just so that when you are doing something that a criminal, if they were doing it, you'd be suspicious of. But like if a regular person did it, you shouldn't be suspicious of. You can just hand them the I'm not a criminal card. Like if I wanted to buy Sudafed at a CVS and I've never created crystal meth in my garage, I should just be allowed to get that Sudafed. Right. So when I go to get it and they're like, oh boy, I don't know. You've got to fill out this paperwork. And I just flash my I'm not a criminal card. I get the Sudafed. No more questions asked. I feel like there should also be an I'm not a racist or I'm not a misogynist or I'm not just a general jerk card so that you can just have that and people can assume that up until the point you do something that's actually racist or misogynistic so that when you say something like, oh, I enjoyed that movie, The Jungle Book, I don't also have to say, and by the way, Rudyard Kipling was a colonial racist jerk and we should not like what he did because of course we know that we shouldn't feel that way. We should just enjoy the uh, the work and divorce that from the man so that's my feeling on on the bill cosby of it all but this is a roundabout way of saying that that's what got me into comedy because i loved bill cosby um i wanted to do what he did comedy wise now so so this is how old were you 
seven. Okay, so you're seven. So now, now what? I mean, as a seven year old wanting to do comedy, I mean, you know, did you start like going doing talent shows, or, or what did you do? Because I know, you know, I know you ended up started writing with Brian and stuff like that. But what, I mean, at seven, did you sit yeah. there and say, "This is what I'm definitely going to do"? Did you put it in your mind, "This is what my job is going to be"? No, uh, I mean not not so far as a I have a crystal clear idea how this is going to happen, and there's a plan involved. I mean, there was comedian, and there was also you know like uh, a superhero and hockey player, right. uh, you know, the, the, a bunch of stuff that seems sort of out there uh, in the world. But uh, it was always in my mind as the thing that was the dream, and I grew up at a time that that dream was fueled all the time i mean you know i'm seven in 1983 and now you know the the 80s comedy boom starts and through my uh, childhood and adolescence it's nothing but wall-to-wall stand-up on television so i'm just absorbing this constantly and you know i i remember uh my main issue being that i had tremendous stage fright uh just just boiling fearful like i my friend Chris used to uh, play uh, piano in the band at uh, Cherokee High School, and um, he could only practice on this grand piano that was on the stage at our school. And I would, you know, he would play the grand piano, and I would just like walk out to the empty uh, audience, you know, the, the, on the stage, and look out at all the empty seats. And I'd imagine myself, oh, I'm a, I'm a stand-up comic, and I just imagine all the applause. And then, like two seconds later, I would think, well, I'd have, I'd have to say some stuff. And they'd be looking at me, and I would get stage fright from the empty uh, auditorium, and I'd have to leave. That's how bad it was. So you know, the actual chances of it actually happening were slim, plus the fact I, I lived in New Jersey, and uh, you know it's, it's not like they come trolling through uh, the colleges of New Jersey to go, hey, you look funny, let's get you a sitcom deal. So I, it, it just sort of became a pipe dream. Um, especially after I went to college, I got my degree in uh, English education, and then I went on to be a teacher. So I was like, "Well, I'll just settle into this. I'll do this for forty-five years. Then I'll, uh, you know, I'll, I'll die with uh, hopefully no, not a lot of debt." Okay, so that you, so you actually, so you sat there, even though you wanted to do comedy, you yeah. actually just, you said, you know, you were so afraid, just mm-hmm. the stage fright, that you didn't try to venture into to Philadelphia and do open mics or stuff like that. You just, you went to college. And you yep. decided I'm going to be a teacher. Now, now, what did you teach? I taught uh, English, uh, secondary ed. I taught uh, you know grammar and uh, the the canon, and also poetry. And um, I, I had gone to an open mic at uh, Andy uh, Andy's room uh, comedy cabaret in the Northeast Philadelphia um, when I was 19 and chickened out. I, I didn't even put my name on the list, uh, so you know that was my one encounter with it. And I was like, well, I'm never doing that again. My second year teaching, I'm teaching a poem called The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. I don't know if you're familiar with this song, uh, this, uh, this poem. Uh, no. But if you get the chance, look it up. It's one of his uh, most famous works. The, the one piece that everybody seems to know from this is the Do I Dare to Eat a Peach line. But essentially, it's about getting into middle age and never having done anything out of fear. And I used to you know, do a big to-do with the kids because it was my favorite poem. And I would have them say... What is your proof rock moment in the outer edges of your mind? And you start to, you know, in, go into that sad decline that we're all headed towards. And, uh, you know, as, as proof rock says in the, in the poem, I have measured out my life in coffee spoons. You know, that it's, every morning is exactly the same. 
what is the thing when you are there 20 odd years from now that you will be regretful of that you never did and that was my big uh, project that I'd have them do and then the little bastards turned it on me Okay. and said well what's yours black and I, I had to say well stand up comedy and just so they wouldn't get the better of me that night happened to be a Wednesday which is the night of the open mic at the comedy cabaret in northeast Philly and I knew where it was because I had driven there for six years earlier um, to chicken out I went and I did a set that I had written that afternoon and uh, from there it was uh, you know as you know from doing stand-up, uh, heroin directly into my veins. Now, now, you know what's funny, though? It's that you had the stage fright, but yet you had no problem getting up and teaching in front of kids. That's what sort of amazes me because, you know, I know stand-up, everyone goes, oh, you know, we're afraid we're not going to be funny. Well, you know, I substitute taught before, and you know what? Those kids can be bastards. I mean, yeah, Let's get real. I mean, and a, a, a bunch of kids on a sugar high are, are worse than a heckler being drunk. So I'm just surprised that you, that you, I mean, you probably never correlated it, but probably it made it easier for you to get on stage because you were getting all that public speaking that people don't get. I, I think you're exactly right. And I, I think what the difference was, I didn't have a lifelong goal to be a teacher. I had a lifelong goal to, you know, you know, the stand-up comedy is one thing, but, you know, I, I was doing English because I like to read and write, and the, the uh, teaching part was just because my father said, hey, get a teaching degree because you can't be vice president of poetry interpretation at a big company. <laughs> so I sort of, like, fell into the teaching, and I think because it wasn't a big deal in my mind, and because it was like a power differential, I was the expert in this subject and the kids weren't, that it was an easier kind of public speaking than in my mind stand-up comedy was where I had inversed the power differential. The, the audience had all the power and that's what made it so scary. And I, I think that it was a good halfway step that allowed me to get over that initial crushing stage fright because you're right, facing down you know, 15 high school sophomores and teaching them about Shakespeare, far scarier than even the worst Philadelphia open mic crowd. Yeah, so, so you, go, you go to the comedy cabaret out there yep. on, uh, what's that, on Roosevelt Boulevard? Or... That Roosevelt Boulevard, so you already know, classy. Oh, yeah, it's like, you know, it's, it's <laughs> K&A adjacent. Um, <laughs> so, so you go there, and now now how do you do your first night? Are, are you happy with it? I mean, once you got on stage, did that fright step back into you, or did you sit there and go, this is what I'm waiting for? How? What was your reaction that first time you hit the stage? The first time I hit the stage, it was my first time I did well. I often wonder, in a different universe, had that first night gone poorly, how would it have gone? Because I, I did well one time in my first nine months of stand-up, and it was that first time. And I think it had, had it been reversed, had it been the second time that I was destined to do well, there wouldn't have been a second time because I would have been so crushed from that first time. But I got up there, it went well, and it was that, you know, that, that bolt of lightning, you know, that that first big laugh, or what seemed like a big laugh at the time, who knows if it was actually as big as I remember, but that first big laugh hits, and it's, you know, every single thing you've ever wanted in human interaction, which, to those of you listening to this going, well, gee, that sounds petty, yeah, that's true, it is very petty because comedians are petty people uh, who don't know how to relate to people in a, in a normal, a natural way, we relate in laughter, 
and that's how it felt. It felt like the first time that it was actually, you know, I, I'm sure my first time having sex was probably as good, if not better, but I don't remember that as crystal clear as I remember getting up on stage the first time. So no, no, you'd get on first stage and you said that was one time you did good and in nine months you didn't do well. Where were you going in Philadelphia? Because I know when I started out, we had the comedy factory outlet, we had the comedy works, uh, and then the funny bone eventually opened, but I was almost by North Jersey by then. Where were you yeah. hitting stages at? Because, you know, there wasn't, I mean, Andy's clubs never had uh, open mics, really. I mean, yep. so so what? Were, where were you going to get on stage? So this is where going that first time six years previous when I was 19 helped me because I couldn't help but notice a lot of the same guys that I remembered from that first time going when I was 19 were still there when I actually got on stage six years later. So it didn't take me long to realize, oh, wait a second. This is not the methodology by which you move up in this area. You, you can't get better here maybe because I know myself well enough to know that I'm going to adapt to the audience as best I can to try to make them laugh. And if it's a bunch of jaded comics watching every week, I'm going to change my set to make a bunch of jaded comics happen. So I said, I'm, I'm not going to do that. After three or four weeks of, of doing the open mic, I just started going to coffee houses and to uh, uh, you know little restaurants, little places that would have a place that you could perform at. And I would say, I'm a young comic, not very good, but what is your night that you don't have a lot of people at your place? And I will you know, go out and I'll paper the area. I'll try to get them in. I won't take anything from the door, maybe a dollar or two, just to have some value to the show that they're watching. And, uh, you know, we'll put on a show. And I, I knew the local comics at the time, so I could get, you know, an hour's worth of stand-up from the local people in there. And, uh, you know, in exchange for that, I'll make their, sure there'll be a one-item minimum is part of the ticket. Okay. So you'll get something sold. And within, you know, if I think my first show was in February, my first open mic, by that summer... By the summer uh, of that year, I had uh, uh, shows running Monday, excuse me, Tuesday through Sunday. We had six days worth of shows. Who were some of the comics back then? Uh, guys like um, uh, you know, Steve Reese, uh, Mike. Now, these are guys who are uh, my class, you know, like right. my. Because I'm, I'm friends with Reese, I'm friends with Reese on Facebook, but I don't know him. Um, let's see. He had a friend named Pat. Who was also called Pork Chop, but I can't remember his last okay. name. He called himself Pork Chop. <laughs> Mike Rainey was part of that group. Chip Chantry, who's doing very well for himself, also a teacher, part of that group. A guy named Jim Johnson, who I thought was the one who was going to be the big star out of our group, but uh, he dropped out after a couple of years and uh, now works in Philly in PR. So, you know, it's uh, very similar to stand up. Um, and uh, Vinny Nardiello, who was uh, my. A good friend from North Jersey, we went to college together, and he went to the open mic the second week with me because he said, you know, he was not going to allow me to do uh, to do stand up without him, and he was my partner in putting together all these okay. shows around Philadelphia. So you're getting these shows going. So you're getting stage time. Do you feel yourself mm -hmm. getting better? Are you getting better? Yes, yes. I'm. I'm. I, I pretty much insist on emceeing all these shows because I realize that like that's the way I'm going to get the chops. Because that's the hardest position. You're up first. It hurts. <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you're trying to get them all focused. And that way I didn't have to put the comics that I was hiring. And I say hiring like, you know, I'd share the door with them, whatever that would be, like 25 30 bucks. 30 uh, 
and I could put them in a, in a better position, which meant that I could trade stage time with them. Uh, so yeah, I'm getting better along this way, but I never have that show that pops the same way that uh, that first show at that first open mic pops, at least in my mind at that time. So you do this for how long do you do this for? So by the end of that summer, uh, you know, so whatever that was, 10 weeks of the summer, I, I do shows that entire time. And one by one, the venues drop off because it's too much of a pain in the butt where somebody said, you know, that it was a PG-13 show to which somebody thought that that meant you could say the C word repeatedly. Right. Um, <laughs> and the sh- it disappears. By the end of that summer, which is, uh, you know, August, September of 2002, uh, I go back to the Comedy Cabaret open mic, and it's my first time back in eight months or whatever. Uh, and I had been doing these MC sets where I was doing 20, 30 minutes throughout the course of the night MCing, and I take all that and I distill it down to my five-minute open mic set, and that is the first time that I can say that I, I felt like I killed. I'm okay. sure if I were to listen to the tape of it, I was not killing, but it just so happened that John Kensel was there that night. I'm sure you know John Kensel. Oh, yeah. I, 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 area. Of course. And he was friends with Andy and said, gee, that was really good. Um we got to get you, in, you know, a, a regular spot at a regular show. He calls Andy, and I start working the comedy cabaret circuit, uh, you know, in guest spot position, but in front of regular paying audience that came for comedy and valued what they were seeing, so that I I got exactly what my goal was, which was in front of real people. Right. That's you, what I. That's what I wanted because you know, I knew real people would make me write comedy for an actual audience and not that sort of arch hipster kind of BS BSy kind of comedy that you do for other comics. Oh yeah. Well, you know, you, you know what's amazing about Andy and it's was, uh, his, his clubs were around for a long time. So his people knew what comedy was. They were smart. I remember when I started out and I was doing comedy for a little bit and he used to book a room in state college called champs. And it was, okay. it was like a three hour ride and I get a call. I didn't really know Andy. I was new. And he goes, hey, uh, this guy, uh, Grover Silcox. And I, I worked the door at the Comedy Factory Outlet. Said, said he wants, you know, I told him to bring it over. He wants to take you. And I was like, all right. And I pay like 150 bucks. And I'm like, woohoo, you know, I'm a comic. <laughs> I'm rich. And I drove with the Grover. And we went. And I had a good set. But it was a bar. But that's the thing with Andy. After that, he called me and said, I got great reports on you. He goes, you know, I heard you're a good MC. Do you want to, you know, I want to book you. I was like, all right. And I feel like I'd booked Mitchell's and Comedy Factory Outlet. And he went through, and that's when he had like eight clubs. And he right. went through my calendar and he gave me 35 weeks. And I was wow. just like, I was like, whoa. And it was, it was MC, but just same thing. They were real crowds. And it wasn't, yeah. the people came out to watch comedy. And it's, it's just like anything else, you know, um, it, it's reps. You know, it's getting those reps in front of people. And, you know, getting good enough so that you can actually get the reps is actually, you know, that that bootstrapping is almost the hardest part because it's, you know, how do I get the experience if I can't get on stage, but I can't get on stage until at least I'm a little experienced. But just, yeah, Adam Carolla has a great riff uh, about restaurants, which are that restaurants are so difficult to keep afloat. You don't have to ask if they're if they're doing okay. All you have to ask is if it's still there. Right. Because if it's still there, it's doing okay. Same thing with helicopter pilots. I'm told that 99.9% of all helicopter crashes are due to pilot error. 
So the way you identify a good helicopter pilot is if he's still alive. <laughs> so if he's still alive and a helicopter pilot, he probably is okay. Versus, I think the same thing is true with comedy. If you are getting on stage, it probably means that you are good enough to be on stage. And it's the only way that you can continue to improve and get better is to continue to get those reps on stage. So if you're still being booked, you're doing okay. So now, so, so you, 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 you started doing the guest spots. Now did Andy start booking you? Yeah, so after after a while, you know, uh, he starts booking me. Uh, Steve Bix, I don't know if you ever worked with Bix back in the day. Steve uh, Bix. <laughs> Steve <laughs> Everybody Bix. does a, Jeff, it is me, Steve Bix. I remember, uh, I, well, okay, so Steve Bix was booking? Steve Bix was booking VFW Halls and uh, Eagles Aries and Moose Lodges all around Pennsylvania. Stuff that I now know is tremendously... Um, hell gigs, right. you know, places where you'd walk in and they'd start making fun of you as you were walking in, like, this guy thinks he's funny. But things that, you know, they give you those calluses on your hands that you need to play the guitar. You know, that you go in there and you, you eat shit in front of them. And by the way, this is, is this an explicit podcast? Can I say that? Well, you can say whatever you want. It's, it's, it oh. goes to a bunch of internet radio stations where you can say whatever you want. Oh, okay. Um, so, uh, it, it, long and short of it is, you go and you do these things and they're tremendously difficult. But you're getting 50 bucks and you're showing up and you're getting to do stand-up and you're getting paid. Uh, you know, because Steve was still working Andy's rooms from time to time. That's where he saw me. And, uh, you know, I started to expand outward. I started to MC for Steve. And Steve at that time had a ton of work, not desirable work, but a ton of work uh, that I was responsible because, you know, I, I had a regular job. I wasn't like a comic that was like, hey, uh, I might be there. I might not. It depends on if my dealer uh, is available that morning. Right. I would show up on time. So, you know, Steve would, uh, gave me his lights and backdrop and said, you know, you got to get there an hour early and set this up. Uh, and, you know, that year, after my first year with Steve, I think I did like something like, you know, 45 dates with him the following year. I mean, I was like working just about every weekend at a different Moose Lodge were, in and around Pennsylvania. Were you working for the Pickle Man? Well, see, no, because I fell in with Steve. If you worked with Steve, you could not work with the Pickle Man. <laughs> there was a booking wall between the two of them. You could not. It was one or the other, Jay. You must make your decision. Oh, so, God, that's so I funny. Was, uh, so, I Steve. So you went to Bix room. Well, it's true, because I remember, I mean, the Pickle Man used to have these gigs, like, he'd ride out in his tricycle with a wig on, <laughs> and then, he, yeah. but, but he had he had damn good pickles. Those things were good-ass pickles. <laughs> You know, he, when you're talking about a comic and the third thing you say about him is he had damn good pickles, probably says all you need to know. Well, he wasn't that. a comic. He was a booker. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. He was a booker. Yeah. But, uh, so, so, so you're working for Steve. But now, do you feel like your act's growing? I know you're constantly writing and you're, you feel like you're advancing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it really is. Uh, you know, I call it my uh, Beatles and Hamburg time um, because I, I made a decision early on. I had just actually read the Beatles biography about you know them playing this port city in, in Hamburg, leaving as just another liver pudley and skiffle band and coming back the Beatles because they never just treated it like a time-wasting gig. And I saw a lot of guys that I was working with, and, and at this time I was uh, I had been traveling with Steve. I started getting work as a feature for the uh, Comedy Zone. I don't know if you've ever worked at the Comedy Zone. Uh, actually, you know what's funny? They years ago, years ago, I, I was working for the Fletchers and some people like that as a feature, 
and I sent the Comedy Zone a tape, that's how long ago it was, a VHS tape, yeah. and they said, we like your stuff, but you're too much of a New York style act. Uh, you, we could host you, and I'm like, I'm not driving down south to host. So. Yeah, yeah, I only ever got in with them, uh, and I got in with them earlier than I should have, because they had somebody fall out last minute on a Friday afternoon, and they, I guess they were just going down their list, and I was the first person who picked up and said, yeah, I, I can make that. And I just barely made it because it was in, you know, I think West Virginia and I was coming from South Jersey. But once I did well there, I got into the, to their circuit. But you would play these places and you would see guys that you would go, well, there's a guy who is going to be here sh for a short period of time and then move on to something else. And here's a guy who's a lifer. And on my second Comedy Zone gig, which for those of you listening who don't understand comedy, Comedy Zone is a regional booker for the southeast of America and they would do these one-nighters. They have a couple of clubs that are really nice clubs, but a lot of times it was just a one-nighter in a bar in Indiana or a one-nighter in a bar in West Virginia. And you'd go in, and it wasn't a comedy space. It was a set of lights in a bar. And uh, I was working with this guy who said, you're going to want to chase the laugh in this room, but the laugh is crack. It's addictive, and it's going to kill you. And I didn't quite put together what that meant at the time, but I realized now what he was saying was, don't be one of these guys who does an entire set built around their drunk driving funny t-shirt. And you're, you're trying to sell the t-shirt because this is how you make your money. No, I mean, you got to make your money how you're going to make your money. But don't be the guy who gives up the idea of doing other things to chase the laugh in these rooms. And I tried my hardest to do both. I still wanted to get the laugh. But I wanted to write material that would get a laugh with them, but would also get a laugh in a club in New York with just as much ease. You know, the things that my heroes would do, which is have these stories that were universal, but unique and personal to them at the same time. So I did my best to just remind myself on every trip down to, uh, you know, uh, the <laughs> Macon, Georgia for the week. Keep in mind, Jay, this is the Beatles in Hamburg to the best of your ability. Right. So, so now you're doing, you're hitting the road, you're getting the featuring, and now, now, how do you start elevating yourself up to headliner? So, uh, what happens is two things. One, I work with this guy named uh, Richie Byrne. Well, I don't know if you know Richie. He's out of New York. He's I remember. The, uh, I remember. Warm up guy for Doctor Oz now. Okay, I remember. And, I remember uh, the name. And I like to think that uh, all the problems that uh, Doctor Oz has uh, is due to Richie giving him advice. That's my theory. <laughs> I don't know if it's true, but that's what I like to think is happening. Dr. Oz, you should talk about, uh, you know, GMOs. Uh, in any event, though, he uh, he sees me at a club, uh, in St uh, Stitches in Lancaster, or I guess the Villa East at the time, and goes, uh, you're really good, kid. I'm going to take you with me. So he brings me on the road to feature for him for a year, and he becomes my mentor, and he's a, just an awesome dude. His manager sees me and takes me on, you know, to be one of her clients as well. This lets me get seen by a college agent. And the college agent goes, well, I think you'd be perfect for the college market. He takes me to a college conference. Now, for those of your listeners who don't know, the co a college, even when you're an unknown, can pay you what three or four weeks of featuring pays you. So uh, I go to one of these colleges, college conferences. I just happen to have a set you know, I think partly because I'm a teacher and I know how to talk to college kids in a way where I'm making them laugh, but I'm not trying to ingratiate myself to them. Right. Because that's a really hard 
thing to play, and they can smell that BS real fast. You know, they can smell the guy who you know dyes his hair jet black and comes out on a skateboard and goes, "Hey, I'm just like you guys." It's like you're 48. I don't think you're just like us. Uh, But I I feel like I can be apart from them, but also understand them at the same time. It goes really well, and I wind up booking like 60 colleges. And when I when I look at the schedule, two things become clear. I'm not going to be able to continue teaching. Uh, if I take all these colleges and it really doesn't matter because this one year of colleges is going to pay me twice what two years of teaching would have done. I can just bank all that money. And if it doesn't work out, I'll go, I'll go back to teaching or I'll try to find something else. But you know, this is the buffer, the, the gift from the comedy gods where I can actually go and do this for a year and see what works. And what happens is you go to these colleges, you're doing an hour plus by yourself. And I, you know, when you feature, you do 20, 25 minutes. Here I am doing an hour at these colleges. And what I do is I'm like, I need an open mic, but you can't get an open mic when you're headlining at a college. So I would do all of the time that I had, which was 45 minutes. And then I put a Q&A in at the end. And soon enough, I was getting the same questions over and over again. And I could write around okay. what I knew those questions would be. And if I got a question that threw me, I could just improv something. And I would just write down afterwards and I would say, okay, well, this is my open mic. I know what I, I can do another 15 minutes and try material out where they're not thinking it's a prepped show. It allows me to create material while still at a college conference or at a college uh, the same way I would at an open mic. And that lets me expand out to, you know, I start the college that year with 45 minutes, barely. I come back at the end of my 60 colleges with 90 minutes of material. And then I had a summer of all those feature gigs booked and all those feature gigs booked. I'm now doing 20 and, you know, or 25. And, you know, if you're cutting from 90 to 20 or 25, it's going to be tight. And if it's not, get out of comedy. because right. you, know, you, you don't know what you're doing. And that was the summer that every single place that I was playing regularly just went, oh, yeah, we got to we got to headline. you. So so you start headlining then. Yes. And so. You had what year was this? This was uh, summer of two thousand seven. Okay, so you start headlining and then you go back to do the colleges. Mm-hmm. And now I know you've been nominated or named College Performer of the Year. Yep, four times, three times, three times. Now uh, that, I've been College Comic of the Year three times, and I've been College All Overall Performer of the Year one time. Now, do you get a plaque, or what do you get with that? Oh uh, yeah, I get a nice little plaque. Um, it's it's funny. I have. Uh, I have my three plaques in the room, in my room, and then uh, my son has one in his room because I brought my son down to accept the award with me, and he just assumed it was his award. Okay. And uh, (laughs) it was funny because he inherited his daddy's narcissism in the sense that I'm like, Keen, what do you think you did to get this? And he was like, I don't know, but they're giving it to me. I'm like, okay, there you go. There you go. (laughs) Just totally accepted it. Of course I deserve this. So So he's got one of them in his room. So now as you're doing the comedy... When, when, I mean, I know you started writing with Brian at a young age, but yep. when did you and Brian Herslinger sit there and start working on screenplays and thinking that this can work, we have a future in this, and also, you know, unlike most comics and writers that leave, you've stayed in New Jersey. Yes, so, yes. So I was still teaching, it was my last year teaching, I go out to visit Brian, and he had just done my date with Drew. And my date with Drew had broken very big for him, and he's getting a lot of attention. And while he's trying to get various projects related to my date with Drew off the ground, 
they're also asking him for follow-up. And, uh, you know, I just go out to do a visit with him. We're taking a walk together in the morning, and he's telling me about a screenplay idea that he has. And I just fall right back into what we did when we were kids, which is go, well, that's a dumb idea. This is what I would do. And by the end of that walk, he goes, well, do you want to write this with me? And I say, sure. And we write it. And it is the most abysmal piece of shit that has ever been written. Uh, you know, it's a screenplay. Neither of us know how to say no to each other. So every idea goes in. And instead of being, you know, 90 solid pages of funny, it's 160 pages of sprawling bullshit. And it's, we both agree, maybe this is good to put in a, in a, in a bin and not ever look at it again. But we don't want to give up and we write a second script and by this time i think a little bit of that like urgency for brian to get a, a follow-up has has dissipated which may be not great for for him at that moment but was great for us as writers because we we just basically said forget trying to please everybody let's just write a script that makes us laugh and see what happens so we write this script called three for the road and everything that we got in screenwriting I think comes from this particular script. It's just, we would get calls from executives going, this is the funniest thing that I've ever read. And in my head, I'm from New Jersey, I'm assuming, oh, well, gee, you're gonna make the movie then. And they go, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, I showed it to my boss, they hated it. They thought it was <laughs> the most offensive thing they ever read, they didn't understand it, they don't even wanna meet with you, but I think it's hilarious. So nothing really happens with that script. A couple of times it almost goes. There was a time in like 2009 or 2010, Brian would know better than me, where you know we had Dane Cook and Luke Wilson and Heather Graham attached for the, the three leads. And we had $10 million coming to us from these two producers. And we actually had a meeting at CAA where everybody was on board, everybody nods their heads, everybody goes, this is, we're making this movie. And then the producers disappear and never show up again with the money. You know, as I'm sure you've heard countless times in talking to showbiz people, with folks at home, if you want to be a producer, this is how you do it. You ready? Hey, I'm a producer. Now you're a producer. You oh, yeah. don't actually have to produce anything. It's oh, the weirdest thing. It's amazing. Yep. I, I wrote I wrote a screenplay when I first moved out here, and it was off someone's story. Same thing. The producers, it's like, I'm like, they didn't even understand I made a joke about a short bus that went in the script. Well, what's that? What's that? I'm like, well, you're writing a guy, you know, and they're like, I don't understand. Maybe we should take it out. People won't get it. I'm like, how are you a producer? Like, don't you, shouldn't you know the project you're producing and maybe do a little research? But you're right. And I've heard that so many times. People, you promised the money. You were, got the money, the money. And then where's the money? And like anything, you know, you guys were young writers. You're excited. You're thinking, yeah. oh, my God. My, I mean, luckily for like you, you were doing stand-up. Yes. And yes. So, so, you know, you you had some money coming in, but a lot of people here don't have any money coming in and they get this this idea and they're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to quit my day job. You know what I mean? And it just changes. It is the closest I imagine to what it feels like being a woman who dated Don Draper. Yes. You know, it just <laughs> you, you get all these promises, you get all these things in your head and then you just wake up to this. You know, drunken guy who who is not going to do anything with you, uh, and that's what it feels like. It's just you're just screwed over, and that's what happened with Three for the Road. It got, like I said, to the point where we had Dane Cook's agent signed off on it, Luke Wilson, which at the time Luke Wilson was a big get. So was Dane Cook. So was Heather Graham. 
and everything falls apart when the money doesn't show up. But that script is such a success. And Brian, you know Brian. You, you've, you've met him. He is, you know, for everything that I am not, he is when it comes to dealing with people. He is just the most gregarious, nicest, just good human being that exists in this world. I am a troglodyte. I am a troll that likes to stay inside. So our partnership has worked where he will do all of the groundwork in Los Angeles because he lives out there. He'll do all the meeting and greeting and handshaking and all that. And, you know, I'll stay back and, and try to do most of the heavy lifting on the actual writing. We do all the plotting together. I do the first draft and then Brian comes in and changes everything that he wants to change in the second draft. But that production of the first draft usually falls on me, which it's still a 50-50 partnership, but we offset to what works best for our particular talents. He's a guy that uh, is really, really good in a room, really, really good at pitching, letting people know what the project is about. And of course, he's directing it, so he understands it inside and out. And I'm just a, a funny person who should not be let out of the house. So I'll do the funny part inside uh, with the script. Now, when you do the funny parts, when you write the funny parts, do you draw any of that from your stand-up act? Is there anything that, you know, because like if you watch old Woody Allen, if you listen to old Woody Allen stand-up, and then you watch, you know, uh, Take the Money and Run, there's jokes from his stand-up yeah. in that. Adam McKay, same thing, when he did comedy in Philly, Adam used to say, oh, it's go time, or, you know, it's the gun show, <laughs> and then years later, it shows up in Anchorman. Do you have any, would you, when you guys are writing, because you were writing with a partner, too, it's just not your script, would you pull anything from your stand-up act and put that in? Very rarely would I pull actual lines from my stand-up act. What, what, what was more of what was happening and what continues to happen is if I'm in a writing phase where I'm trying to get writing on the stand-up, or excuse me, writing on the script done, it's like more like in a sci-fi movie where the, the machine turns on and draws more and more power from the main reactor. So when the script machine is on, I don't have much writing energy for stand-up. So it's not like I'm drawing from stand-up, I'm just drawing attention away from stand-up. So if I'm writing a script for three or four months, there's a pretty good chance that there won't be any new jokes in the stand-up act in those three or four months because okay. you get done the script and you're like, all right, well, let me write a joke about my penis now. And you're just like, I don't have the energy for it. I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna go do what I know works. Now, now, where do you pull from for your stand-up act, for your writing? I mean, you know, the script doesn't say a script, you have a story. You can pull from that, you know, you guys yeah. collaborate. Your act, and has how, where do you pull from, and has it changed over the years? Uh, I, it's changed, I think, because it draws from what is immediately annoying me at any given moment. Uh, and, you know, that started, it was, you know, being a teacher and having a fiancé, and then it became having a wife, and then it became having a wife and kid, and then it became having a wife and kids. Uh, so, yeah, any anything that, like, is under my skin you know my, my wife will always go to me why are you so, why do you complain so much you're such a miserable person and i'll say well i am but that's that that keeps the bills on it keeps the, the bills paid and the lights right. on because <laughs> I, I i have to get annoyed first it's like a you know i'm a, I'm a clam i the, it's the sand needs to turn into a pearl so i get annoyed i get frustrated i can't enjoy myself anywhere i have anhedonia uh, speaking of Woody Allen, you know, the original name of uh, Annie Hall was Anne Hedonia, uh, inability to be happy. But that turns into my personal annoyance at something turns into a joke. Like I'm 
working on something. I was at a uh, uh, hotel and I was trying to get uh, the uh, soda out of the vending machine. And uh, it, of course, didn't work. And I went to the front desk. And of course, it's the same thing that you hear everywhere, which is, oh, yeah, no, we don't, we have no responsibility for those uh, vending machines. I, they're here from an outside vendor. We have no, and we've heard this a million times. So I'm, I'm working on a monumental bit about how this is, this is like hiring mercenaries to do your dirty work, and it should not be allowed. But that right there, that moment will turn into a, a piece of comedy. So it's, I would say, observational in the old school sense of like Seinfeld or, or whatever, but with a more angry, pressing need to get people to understand what's, what's upsetting things. No, no, as, as you get older, and you, you said you have three kids, uh, yeah. how, how is it for you to relate to college? And I want to ask you this because you've been doing colleges since what, 2007, 2008? 2006 would probably be my first college. Okay. Yeah. So we're looking at, you've been doing colleges for 10 years and, and, mm-hmm. and you work a lot. You're not like someone who goes, oh, I'm doing a college. You do a five-minute guest set. You're doing these yeah. sets. And you've and, and our whole political and PC climate has changed. And, you know, the yes. whole thing is, so as a comic, as you've developed through these 10 years and going from now a father of three, you know, a mm-hmm. homeowner in Marlton, New Jersey, you know, uh, upstanding Pillar of society, whatever you know, you've probably gone, <laughs> probably gone to PTA meetings. I mean, you guys are basically, you know, you're what I would call, you know, when I grew up, a typical Cherry Hill family. You know, it's, I mean, yeah. Marlton, we're white so, bread, we're white bread. Yeah. So how does that now? How does that work? How have you seen it change your act and in relating to the kids? Because it does seem I, I don't really perform much anymore. But I was joking around. I did a set. I stopped by this place and did a set the other night, and it was this kid's twenty second birthday. And I call, he had an ugly haircut, and I called him, I don't know, a, a Art Garfunkel Chia Pet. And he got, like, all offended. Or I called him a mm-hmm. hipster or something. But how have you noticed how it's changed? So uh, I would say two things there. One, I think that my success at the colleges, if you go to a college conference and you watch the acts that get chosen, there are acts that are cool. And there, this is not a, an indictment of those acts because I would love to be cool. But they're guys that are all current of the moment. They are you know, filled with the zeitgeist. They have the right genes, both on them and in them. And they get chosen because it's like, oh, this guy talks directly to me. He gets me. And they don't tend to stick around for, for 10 years. Because you can only be of the moment for the moment. And then there's always going to be somebody else that comes along. And when somebody goes, oh, you've been doing colleges for a long time, I think they immediately think of that first guy. I was never that guy. I was talking about, you know, being a teacher. And then, you know, my my wife was pregnant with my first child when I was doing that first tour. I was talking about, like, the impending fatherhood from the very beginning, consciously because I, I, I knew I wasn't going to be cool and if I tried to be cool, they would know that and they would eat me alive because they would smell that BS. I was just being who I was. And, you know, I've had many agents say, don't talk about that stuff. Just, you know, say fiance, don't say wife. Say, don't say kids, say nephew. And I go, yeah, but they know that I'm older and they know what children are. It's not like they, they just go, oh, I had no idea what the little people were for. They've seen kids before. They will laugh at this stuff. They won't think I'm cool, and maybe that will eliminate certain schools for me. But they will laugh because I laughed at Bill Cosby 
at seven. I laughed at Richard Jenny when I was 13. I laughed at Seinfeld when I was 18. You're going to find these guys that make you laugh regardless of your age. So I've always strove, strove to be those guys uh, to the best I can. But the second part about the colleges uh, and how they've changed, it is a much more PC atmosphere. And PC in a way that is a different kind of PC than the 90s, where it wasn't just about the language you were using. Now it's about recognizing all of these subtleties of the interactions that you have with people, that especially as a white cis male, like I am, that I don't think of. Things like privilege and uh, you know, both gender and, and race. And rather than resist it, I've tried to embrace it. And by that I mean I've tried to understand where they're coming from without immediately say, uh, well, you're dumb. This is dumb that you feel this way. Just get over it. This is dumb. Because some of it is dumb. And I think that even people who are really in that world will admit that some of it's dumb. But, uh, you know, I heard a really interesting interview with... Uh, Oh, what's his name? Uh, the guy who did uh, insult the tri triumph the insult comedy dog. Uh, Robert uh, Schmeigel. Robert Schmeigel. Uh, Schmeigel was, was talking about uh, the famous triumph goes to the line for Attack of the Clones and makes fun of everybody. And he, you know, without breaking it down, you can get it. It's the Bill Simmons interview with Robert Schmeigel. Robert Schmeigel goes, "We had two cuts. One in which somebody used the f word." not F-U-C-K, but the F word for a gay person, and one without. And we didn't think, our generation, Conan and me, did, it didn't even occur to us that the, the F word would be a problem. And one of the interns said, it's a problem. You shouldn't have that in there. That's a very offensive term. And he said, I could have resisted, but if I had resisted, that thing would not exist right now in the internet or in our collective memory the way it, it does. Because you'd watch it and you'd go, oh, problematic, and you'd turn it off. Okay. So his response was, rather than yell at these kids for being dumb, I try to listen to them and take, oh, that's an offensive word to you. I didn't realize that. I'm either going to embrace it and not use that word, or I'm going to have a conversation about it in my act to try to find where the middle ground on, on it is. You know, like Louis C.K. does brilliantly in the episode of Louis – with uh, Rich, uh, Rich Chrome. I don't know if you know Rich. I know uh, who he is. Yeah, he's a, a gay comic, and they have a discussion about the F word. But I think being aware of the zeitgeist is very important. And even if you disagree, learning about where they're coming from so that you can push back intelligently or, or agree with them when it's warranted, I think, is very important. So you're doing stand-up, and you're doing the writing, and now I heard you're – did you act in the Valentine movie, or are you acting in a Christmas movie? So I, I acted in Meet My Valentine. Um, I think I was like the fifth or sixth lead, uh, and I'm act's um, Christmas movie that's going to come out. I'm on the fourth lead on that. So each movie I move up one or two levels. So, so by the third movie, it'll be – you know the fourth or fifth movie, it'll be Jay Black in – a Jay Black story. Did, yeah. Did, did you want to act or is it just something that you had the opportunity so you said you could act or was it something that, you know, Brian said, hey, you might be good for this role? It was a combination of all three. It was, I, I, I never really had an urge to act, but the problem is with stand-up is, you know, actually Sinbad said this to me. This is my name drop. <laughs> I was opening for Sinbad and he pulled me aside. And by the way, I don't know if you've ever worked with Sinbad. 
monster act. Oh, uh, Rich just, Rich Schneider told me what a beast. Like he opened for Rich years ago, and Rich Schneider tells a story which what a beast he is. He, he, you know, I know he gets a lot of crap. He shouldn't. The man's a phenomenal comic. Go see him. But Simbad, I'm opening for Simbad, and I'm doing my twenty. You know, and this is I, I headline most places, but for celebrities, I'll I, I split the week. You know, I do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Sunday, and then Friday, Saturday, I open for the celebrity. But Sinbad goes, you are in a very precarious situation because you are too funny to open for celebrities, and not me because Sinbad goes, not me because I'm the best there is, and I'm like I can't argue with that. You, you followed no problem, uh, but there's a lot of guys who are not full-time stand-ups anymore they're just celebrities who used to do stand-up who when they travel don't want to follow 30 minutes of a guy killing so you're not going to get into those rooms that you desperately want to get into that are the the a room circuit where you can make a very good living and not do colleges or not do corporate you can actually just do these funny bones and improvs and and do okay so you're not going to get into those rooms because you're not famous enough to get in there but you're not going to get in as a as a middle because the celebrities don't want you in there. So you're screwed. And, you know, him saying that to me was like, well, that's a wake-up call. I got to find a way around that. How do I get around doing that, living in New Jersey with my wife and kids and not living in Los Angeles or uh, New York to get famous? And I, it, it just occurred to me while I'm writing these movies, I should probably always write myself apart. And then if the movie gets made, I can be in it and it will just be ancillary to my stand-up it'll just be helpful in getting noticed at the a clubs for them to go oh well this guy might be a big enough name that we can bring him in so it was more about the stand-up than anything else but once i started acting i, I really enjoyed it it was a lot of fun I, I had a great time with it um but you know it's i as i said i just went into an audition it's actually my first audition ever for like outside work and the woman was like you have a passion for acting and i was like let me put it this way. Acting is like regular cocaine, where stand-up is like really good crack cocaine. It's like CIA level, you know, 1981 crack cocaine. So I, it's always about the stand-up, but I'm enjoying the acting as well. So then are you, what was your audition for? It was a general audition for, I don't want to give too much of the detail away, it's for a big company that uh, is one of the places on television that has three letters in its name that uh, is looking, now that pilot season is op over, they're looking for next pilot season and different types of actors. So they do a general and bring you in and just sort of have you read a couple of pages and go like, well, what is your type going to be? And is this a type that we should think of moving forward? So Now, if something that happened, if like that happened, would you move to L.A.? What I would probably do is uh, see how long the commitment is. You know, if it's half a year, then, yeah, I'd probably have to move to L.A. and, and bring my family or, you know, f figure out something with frequent flyer miles. But, uh, you know, if it's a commitment of like two months, I'd probably just come out for two months and then go back to my regular life when I wasn't filming. I, I did it for two years. I would come back to go when I was when I met you at, at Marlton because I was not, oh, sure. I wasn't yeah. back east for ages and my girlfriend lived back there. She lives now here with me after you know doing that for two years it gets pretty easy you'd be surprised you think it's going to be hard but you know it's it's the flight out there from la to jersey that sucks because you have to add all that time but when you're mm -hmm. flying back it's yeah. great like when you leave and then all of a sudden you get off and there's only an hour difference and you go hey this is okay yeah i i, I would like to think 
that, you know, just like anything else, the entertainment, you know, Steve, the entertainment industry, I'm a guy that won't even take mail to my neighbors, neighbors that were delivered here by accident because I'm too lazy. But if, if, if somebody said, oh, there's a, there's a one-nighter in Maine that really wants you on a Tuesday, I'm like, I'm in the car now. I'll right. be there. Be there at any time. So, yeah, the travel I don't think would be as problematic as, as it builds into my head because once you're in the thick of it, you're just trying to get it done and uh, you know, see your family as much as possible when you're not performing. So we'll, we'll see. I mean, I, the audition went very well. Uh, until I spilled my soda all over the uh, couch, um, so I had uh, to clean it up. But I did have a good line. I said, uh, "You know, when I when I uh, thought that I would be staining the cast, casting couch today, I didn't think it'd be this way." And uh, everyone laughed. So I I immediately left on that line, saying, "You know, like I I can't top that, so I right. might as well get out on that." We just have a few minutes left. I got a quick question sure. for you. I went to your website, which your website is jblackcomedy.com. Yes. And your Twitter is. Jay Black Comedy on Twitter. Okay. And so now now you're doing a lot of stuff at, at uh, Rowan State? Rowan, uh, uh, yes, uh, Rowan University Re- or the old Glassboro State in, uh, in Glassboro, New Jersey. But you're booked there like once every week. Yeah, so the, I'm doing their freshman orientation, and they have about 3,000 kids that uh, are freshmen at the college. But instead of bringing them all in at once they do 10 separate freshman orientations of 300 or so a pop. And I am the entertainer for all 10. That's pretty good. That must be fun. Oh, it's great. It's great. The only thing that is bad is the kids who are the uh, upperclassmen who help out with the, uh, the freshman orientation because they have to see my show 10 times. So they get to be like servers in a club where they're like rolling their eyes and like, you know, mouthing along with me. And uh, that kind of gets, you get in your head of like, I know I'm not pleasing you right now. I'm so sorry, but I, I can't write a new hour, you know, in, in over the course of one week as I'm doing all these shows. So, uh, yeah, that's the only bad part is they get to very familiar, intimately familiar with your act. And uh, at your website, it has all your dates. I know you have Vegas coming up, Reno and mm-hmm. Arizona. So now do you tweet a lot before we go? Do you tweet a lot? I, I went through a period where I was tweeting like, you know, 10 times a day. And I was in my head about it. I don't know if you get in your head about it, where you're like looking at your follower list and you tweet something and like lose six followers and you're like, right, what right. upset them? I got to track them down and find out. And then I realized, what am I doing? How is this helpful to anybody? So I took like a, a Twitter fast of about a month and uh, now I'm back on and I'm just trying to limit myself to one or two a day and, and not get sucked back into the whirlpool of Twitter. Cool, man. Well, hey, man I, I want to thank you. I'm glad we could do this because I'm glad I, I record out at home now so it's a lot easier. And I wanted to yeah. talk to you. So I want to thank you for coming on. I want to thank you for having me and then asking me lots of questions about myself and oh, feeding course. my narcissism. So people, go to J Black Comedy. Also, go to my website, coopertalk.net. coopertalk.net. I have over 520 episodes up there. Um, awesome. Raphael Zabar will be being posted soon. And Liz Gillis from Sex, Drugs, Rock and Roll and Victorious uh, will be on. Will be posted. Also, follow me on Twitter. It's at coopertalk. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Instagram and Words with Friends, Cooper Talk One. I like Words with Friends. I'm okay. I'm not great. I'm not bad. I'm okay. And also, don't forget my other website, StopTheSalt.com. It's my low-sodium cookbook for one. 120 easy recipes. You can get it at Barnes & Noble. You can get it at Amazon.com, both of those .coms. But get it from me because I make more money, and I'll sign it for you. And, you know, you want to start eating healthy because you want to live. You don't want to go through health problems. So, people, please follow at J Black Comedy. Go to jblackcomedy.com. 
coopertalk.net. Email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I will talk to you guys next week. There we go.